0: Good morning. My name is JT. If you're new to Freshwater, welcome. So thankful that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. And so, as I always say, if you have any questions whatsoever, come find me after the service. I'd love to answer those for you. I'd love to talk with you. Um, anything that you've got for me. We want to be. the church to be a place that's just an open book and any answers you're looking for, or any questions you have, you're able to ask. Um, and so, a couple things before we actually get into the book. Go ahead, if you were in Exodus 7, just flip back to Exodus 6. We're going to get into Exodus 7, but there's going to be something that we're going to read there, so just be ready if you need to flip the page. Probably it's going to be the same page you were just on, but um, we'll start in Exodus 6 today, and I just want to make you guys aware of something that I'm really excited about. I think most of you don't know this, but I'm in a pastor's group, and we meet once a month, and I'm actually in a couple, but one of them in particular I really love because it's um, a bunch of pastors from a bunch of different denominations. Right? And so we're not all Baptists or all Assemblies of God or all of this. We're not, we're not all of anything. It's just an opportunity for pastors to get together who are like, we're very much like-minded in Christ and in the gospel and the greater things of theology. But um, on some of those other things, we can put some of our, our smaller differences aside for the sake of Christ and just pour into each other and support each other. I go on a retreat with them once, once a year for three days. Some guy gives us his ranch for three days for free and cooks for us. It's like amazing. Praise God that people want to take care of their pastors sometimes. Whew. I'm I'm super pumped, but anyway, Uh, but anyway, it's a great group. But two of those guys in the group, one is um, from Jefferson Avenue Baptist Church, the other one is from Christ Community Church, Um, and they've asked us and want us to be involved in a combined Good Friday service. And so I'm really pumped about it. So on Good Friday, which I believe is April second, we're going to go to Christ Community Church, which is on the far southwest side of town. I don't really know what's on that side of town. I've never been there. I'm a north side guy. it's a joke. I've been to the south side of town before, right? But um, we'll go to the south side of town. Us north will brave the south, the dangerous south side, and um, we'll go down there, and we're going to gather together and just show unity in Christ, right? And so we're going to celebrate Good Friday together. It's going to be outside unless the weather's not good, and then we'll actually switch it to a different church, but we don't have to worry about that right now. But assuming the weather's good, we'll be outside. There'll be a food truck there that'll have, like, coffee and snacks. We won't have big meals, but coffee and snacks, We're just going to worship and pray and read the word and proclaim the gospel together with Christ Community Church and Jefferson Avenue Baptist. Does that sound good? I'm really pumped. I can't, I can't wait to do it. Yeah, you clap. I like that. Clap for that. Thanks, Kristen. So anyway, so get that on your calendars, April 2nd, Good Friday. That'll be a a big day and we'll, well, in a weird way, what we're going to do later today, celebrate the death of Christ. What a weird thing to celebrate, right? In our religion, if you're not from Christianity, that might sound weird. But that's what we're going to do because he went to the cross to die for us, so that we could be set free. And we might that might come up today. Um, that might come up today. Um, anyway, all right. So Exodus, can you believe it? Do you know how long it's been since we've been in Exodus? I think it's been twelve weeks. We've taken a 12-week break, and so we're back in our series, Exodus, called Kingdom to Kingdom. And I just can't wait. I'm pumped. And this is a really great passage to start back into. Like, Really, the reason we call it Kingdom to Kingdom, because really the story of Exodus and the story of of the Bible is how God takes us from the kingdom um, of this world, the kingdom of sin and death, the kingdom of Satan and evil, into the kingdom of God, the glorious kingdom of God, and how he delivers us into that. And so that's what we're talking about today. And so considering we haven't been in this book for three months, it just seems insane, it's been that long, I think we need a little refresher, right? Somebody say right. This is the most silent group of freshwater people ever. Stop being Baptist. I need some of you, you know charismatic assemblies of God past people to speak up a little bit. There we go. It's all right, Brandon. I didn't say be, you know. No, like we're a big group of people. Brandon made the comment, I'm the least charismatic person in the room last week. And some people are like, what does that mean? It means that he's just way too Baptist. That's what that means. But anyway, um, I love it. I love it. Anyway, so you can talk back to me a little bit today. But we're going to go through a semi-quick recap. It's not really that quick, but I want to make sure that we, we roll back into the sermon series in the right way. So if you remember, All of this really started with a man named Abram. Remember that? A man named Abraham. That's really where we started this series. God came to him, if you remember, and made some promises, made some covenants. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, which they were old people when he said, I'm going to give you a son. So that was a miracle in itself. I'm going to give you a son. And not only that, but through that son, I'm going to make a huge people group. And through that people group, I'm going to bless every nation on earth. So when he said, through that that line, through that people group, I'm going to bless every nation on earth, what was that? promise referring to Jesus Christ right Jesus Christ came through the land of Abraham it is starting right here and He said that, I'm gonna bless every nation on earth I'm gonna make you this huge people group and not only that but he said I'm gonna put you in a land for 400 years that is not your own and but after those 400 years I'm gonna give you your own land a land flowing with milk and honey I'm gonna give you a promised land and I will be your God and you will be my people So these huge promises, these huge covenants, that's what we talk about constantly, these covenants that God made with Abraham and his family. So then we're going to fast forward all the way to his great-grandson, Joseph. And there's a lot to Joseph's story we're not going to cover today, but in the end, the important part is Joseph ends up in Egypt and becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, only behind Pharaoh. Arguably, you could say he was the second most powerful man in the world, as Egypt is thought to be the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. And so, Joseph doesn't just move there. At this time, Abraham's family had become a family of 70 people. He brings his whole family to Egypt. And listen, they came into, into Egypt, so we're going to call them the Jews, or the Israelites, or the Hebrews. If I use any of those phrases, we're talking about all the same people, Abraham's family. They come into Egypt with a huge amount of favor and blessing. Egypt loves Joseph. He basically saved them from a famine and death, and just basically saved the whole, that whole area of the world. So, Come in with huge favor, huge blessing. Pharaoh loves them. Egypt loves them. And they're, they are protected by their extremely powerful leader, Joseph. But then 400 years pass. Just as God said, you'll be in a land that's not your own for 400 years. Just as God said it would happen. They were there for 400 years. And Egypt forgot about Joseph. They forgot about the blessings and how he saved them. All they saw was this huge people group because over those 400 years, God kept his promise and Abraham's family had turned into an entire race of people, an enormous people group, and it made Egypt afraid because they had these people in their land that were not really of them. They were the Israelites. They were the Hebrews. And for whatever reason, whether whether, whether Pharaoh thought they were going to rebel or try to take over the country or partner with the people around them, they got afraid of them. So what did he do to those people? Yes? Slaved. He put them in slavery, right? He enslaved the people of Egypt. And so in that, the Jewish people, in their devastation, in their enslavement, in their oppression, they, they cry out to their God, and God hears and God listens because he knows his people. That's what I want us to read in Exodus 6. In Exodus 6, we're going to see God talking, and this is be His. this is his response, not only to his people, but really, this is kind of the thesis statement of the entire book of Exodus. You want to know what Exodus is about? It's about what we're going to see in Exodus 6. So read Exodus 6, verses 5 through 8 with me. Exodus 6, 5 through 8. This is God talking. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment." I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So in that statement, we really see not only God's response to his people, but we see the main themes of this book. So the, the main, really the main theme of Exodus is God's glory right? is God's glory being made known to the nations. This is about God's kingdom. That's what this book's really about, but underneath that, this is about proclaiming the glory of God. We have three main themes underneath that, and you can see them all within Exodus 6 right there. I think we have a slide for that. Doesn't we got that slide? Here here, here are the themes of Exodus. One is God's covenant faithfulness, right? He says, I will remember my covenant. He's referring back to the covenants he made with Abraham, and he's going to keep all of those promises. When we the second theme is God's deliverance. He's promising here to deliver God's people from, from slavery and from the kingdom of Pharaoh and then God's presence. God is, is telling them, I'm gonna be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm gonna give you a land and that promises, I'm gonna give you a land where I'm going to dwell with you, where I'm going to be with you. So God's promising his presence. That's what this book is about. It's really what the whole Bible is about, right? But it's specifically a, what the book of Exodus is about that God keeps his promises to his people and he cares for them and he takes care of them. So, that's what God is promising. Now, how, or maybe a better way to say that is, through who is God going to use to keep those promises to the people? Who does he use? Moses. Right? People like to say that like to think that this book is about Moses. It's not about Moses. It's about God, but God does use Moses. God calls this guy to go to Pharaoh and on his behalf say, "Let my people go." So if you remember, Moses, he calls this former murderer. Moses is a murderer, and now he's a shepherd. A shepherd who at that time is kind of, that's kind of like the lowest rung of society, right? So Moses went from a murderer and kind of a prince of Egypt to the lowest rung of society possible, right? So he calls a shepherd who, by the way, also has no confidence in the way he speaks at all. Some people say that Moses was a stutterer or had a speech impediment. That might be true. I don't think from the Hebrew we can say that for sure, But Moses was definitely not confident in his speech. He thought he was not capable of this at all. And so he's basically saying, God, why in the world would you choose me? And if you're looking at the story, you should probably think, too, why in the world would God choose somebody like Moses? Like we hold Moses so high, but Moses by this time is a nobody. But isn't that what God does throughout Scripture again and again to show just how powerful he is? He didn't choose Pharaoh the most powerful man in the world to show his glory. He chose the most unlikely person possible, a sinful man who's become a nobody, who might even be killed for walking into Egypt for his former crimes. And he says, no, I'm gonna use that guy, that outcast, that nobody to show just how powerful I am. It's amazing. It's amazing how God works to show his glory. Well, if you remember at the burning bush when God tells Moses this, he's freaked out. He's like, no, there's no way I can do this. I don't speak well enough. I'm not gifted enough. No, no, no. But after some encouragement and some pretty, pretty significant prodding and even giving him a few miracles to do, not only that, he says, I'll let your brother Aaron go with you and he can speak on your behalf if he needs to. Moses relents and God sends Moses off to Egypt. So actually when Moses comes back to Egypt, it's a pretty cool thing. He gets back to Egypt and he says, God sent me Right? And the people believe him, and they rejoice, and they worship God, and it seems like everything's going to go great, like everybody's excited. And then Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and like as the Lord commanded, said, let my people go. And how did that go? Terribly. It went badly. So badly, in fact, that Pharaoh not only refuses to listen to Moses and his God— but he increases the workload of people that are already terribly oppressed, already worked to the bone. He increases their workload, makes it much more difficult for them, and it just gets much, much worse. So badly, in fact, all that Moses did was do exactly what God commanded him to do. But because of that, the people basically curse, ask God to curse Moses, bring judgment on Moses for doing this to them. Can you imagine if you and some of you have been there. You just did exactly what you were supposed to do, the godly thing, what God asked, and they beat him up for it. I mean, not literally, but they just, they're done with Moses. And so, kind of what, we're close to where we finished before we got into this portion of scripture, we see Moses who's terribly discouraged. The people are angry and hopeless and no one seems to understand what is going on. You ever been there? So like, how, how, how could this possibly be where I am? How could this possibly be where God wants me? Why, why would God let this happen? But as we've seen and we've talked about, sometimes God does his most amazing work when times seem the bleakest. Is that not true? When it's absolute bleakest, God does the most amazing work. Sometimes he brings salvation when it seems the furthest away. And that's what we saw at the end of chapter six into chapter seven, the beginning of chapter seven that Kayla read today. Moses is having serious doubts again, once again, about his abilities. He's questioning why God would do this to him. It's in that, mo- that moment that God reminds Moses of something and something we all need to be reminded of, right? A lot of us who grew up in church, grew up in, grew up in church hearing like the stories about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea and all these plagues and you can be like Moses. no. The story is not about Moses. This, is a, this story is about a man who kept telling God over and over and over again, he could not do this. He was not gifted. I don't want to be in this position. Is that, is that who we want to be in Christ? Is that who, who we look up to? Like in some ways, absolutely, we should look up to Moses. He provo- proves to be an absolutely faithful and righteous man. But don't put yourself in the story and think, man, I need to be like Moses. You need to put yourself in the story and say, man, I need to worship God. Because in the end, what does God remind Moses of? This says, listen, buddy, I know this is hard. I know you don't get it, but this is about me. I am the I am. I am going to see this done. I am going to keep my promises. I am going to set my people free from slavery. I am going to stretch out my hand of judgment and do miracles so that Pharaoh will let my people go. And I am going to see my glory spread, not only to Egypt, but the entire world. That's what this book is about. So he's saying to Moses, he's not coming down on Moses. He's really saying, he's saying, Moses, don't worry. I know it seems hard. I know it seems bleak, but don't give up. I am the I am. And by the end of this, everyone will know I am the Lord. Do you want to you get a really quick thesis statement of what this book is about? I am the Lord. That's what this book is about. And I think in the world that we're living in now, we need a little bit of that. With the highs and the lows, the good and the bad, the depression and everything else that's coming with the world we live in right now, we need to remember that God is saying to us, you don't have to carry all that because I am the Lord. So as we jump into our passage today, that's kind of our recap. As we jump into our passage today, this week we're gonna really be stepping into a cosmic con- confrontation. I don't think I'm overstating that. This is a cosmic confrontation because on the surface, it just looks like a contest between the might of Egypt Right, the might of the most powerful kingdom in the world versus the kingdom of God. In a lot of ways, it seems pretty straightforward in Exodus, and it is. In a lot of ways, it is. But what we're going to see more and more as this contest plays out is that in the end, this is not really a physical battle in the world. It is, but in the end, it's a spiritual battle, a contest between the gods of Egypt and the God of the Bible. So in the end, yes. Yes and amen is a context, contest between Pharaoh and Moses, between e- Egypt and the, God, and the God of the Bible. But what we're really gonna see in our passage today is God begin to dismantle and destroy the spiritual powers held so high in Egypt. The powers that, Mo, that the God King Pharaoh represents in a lot of ways. Powers, again, that they call the gods of Egypt. I'm gonna put that in quotes. But here's the thing. you know what scripture would call the gods of Egypt? What, what scripture would call that? Scripture would call that the work of Satan. Because in the end, like, I'm gonna say something bold. In the end, Scripture's clear. You're either for God or you are against God, right? And if you are against God, if you were here a couple weeks ago, what does Ephesians 2 say about your life and what you're doing if you're against God? If you're against God, who are you serving? Satan, like, it's just, we gotta say it bluntly and boldly. Like, this is not kind of like, well, they were just kind of led astray. No, you're serving the power of the prince of the air, the, the, power, the God and the ruler of this world, as scripture says, or you're serving the God of the Bible, the God of his kingdom, right? So they are being led astray by Satan and his demons that are portrayed as the gods of Egypt. But this, in the end, this is a spiritual battle between God and Satan and his demons. This is a, a battle between good and evil. This is a spiritual battle in the heavenly places, so we're gonna to get to see God begin to systematically dismantle and devour not only Pharaoh's power, but the spiritual powers behind him that he represents as the God-king of Egypt. But today and the rest of the series, it really is also a lot more than that because it's also a reminder for us. This is not just some ancient story, right? ancient story that we set ahead. It's not, we're not just New Testament Christians. Do you realize that the rest of the Bible is recycling and repeating the the story of the Exodus, the story of the Passover. This is the story of the Bible. Like God is setting up the story that will be pulled all the way through to Revelation. And so this is relevant to us today. It's a reminder for us that in this world, man, guys, we're going to have trouble. Things are going to go badly until Jesus Christ returns and undoes the curse of sin and all of the absolutely awful consequences that come with sin and evil being in this world. We're going to have trouble. It's a part of it, but we don't lose hope because in the end, yes, we have an enemy that is against us and wants to destroy us. Yes, sin tries to own us and tries to hurt us and tries to derail us, but in the end, we have the one that is above all, that controls all, and if you are in Christ, is in all, and one day is going to come, is not only now destroying and devouring the work of Satan, but one day is going to come and completely devour and destroy all of his work, all of his power when he redeems all things. That's what we need to hold on to. This is not some ancient story. This is what we need to hold on to today. So, with that really short intro, um, let's jump into our patches, our actual text today, and see this battle begin, because it really begins today. So I I, I gave uh, Kayla the whole, to read the beginning of the chapter for some context, but we're actually going to start in verse 8 today. Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. We're going to read the first two verses for now. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent, that it may become a snake. All right, so... If you were here, and you remember, if you know this story really really well, in Exodus 4, Moses is at the burning bush with God, right? His first encounter with God, like this amazing encounter. And he's once again saying, I can't do this. But one of the things he says, I'm gonna go back, God, and they're not gonna believe me. Nobody's gonna believe me. Who am I? And he's right, who is he? No one's gonna believe me. So what does God give him? He gives him a couple miracles to display his power. And one of these miracles that he gives to display the power of God and to prove that he's really sent by God is this staff. God says, throw down the staff, Moses. And he throws it down, and what's it turn into? Thanks, Russ. I actually heard that. I heard, I heard this. <laughs> I got this from everybody, right? Wasn't a trick question. It turns into a snake, right? It turns into a snake. And so, this moment is God keeping that promise to Moses, right? He's saying, go back into Pharaoh. You go back in and you talk to him. And when he asked for a miracle, when he asked you to prove yourself, just like they talked about back in Exodus 4, I want you to throw down this staff. And in this moment right here, we truly begin. Like, this is the moment when the story really begins, and it begins the most epic story ever told. Does that seem like an exaggeration to say that? The reason I say it's the most epic story ever told, because it is, but I mean, even Hollywood, who hates God, and like people that like are atheists are wanting to make this story in in Hollywood because it's so epic, but not only that, is that As I said before, this story is a story that plays out through the rest of Scripture. This is introducing contents of deliverance, of an exodus, of a Passover that's played out all the way through the New Covenant and all the way into into Revelation. This story is referenced at the end of the Bible because this is the story of the Bible, right? So we have to be able to grasp this thing and know this thing. That's why it's the most epic story ever told. Because it's all wrapped up in Jesus. So if you know the story, most people kind of think of this as like the first step, next week we're going to really get into it, of the ten plagues, right? The ten plagues, the frogs and the gnats and the Nile and all that stuff, the ten plagues that lead to God freeing his people, the the real, why we call it the exodus, them exiting um, Egypt. But really, if you look at the Hebrew word that's describing all of this here, it doesn't really come across as plagues. It, it, It really more accurately is translated as miraculous sign. God begins to do miraculous signs. Now, we call them plagues because the ones that come after this, in, in their way, they all bring some sort of destruction or death, right? They are plagues. They are plagues. And so it's right, it's right to call them that. I'm not saying don't call them the ten plagues, but if we see them for miraculous signs of God proving his glory and his power over all creation, the story doesn't really start with the first plague next week that we're going to get into with the Nile. It starts right here with a staff. It starts right here with a staff, the first of 11 miracles and signs that God will do to show Pharaoh and Egypt, his power. And it's important. Do you know why? Because this staff ends, ends up becoming a very important symbol to the rest of this story. Did you know that? Right? This, this staff is a representation of God's power and provision over his people. Because next week, when we're talking in the Nile, he turns the Nile into blood. What is he sticking to the Nile? The staff. When they're at the Red Sea and the, the Egyptian army is behind them and there's no way for them to escape, what does Moses raise to part the Red Sea? Staff, later in the story, we go further, when they're in the desert desert, and they have nothing to drink and they think they're gonna basically die because they don't have enough to drink, what does Moses strike, strike a rock with? His staff, and then water pours out of it. Like the staff becomes a representation for Moses and the people and for us, us as of his power, of his provision, that he takes care of his people, that he's with his people. And so Moses uses his staff in other ways too. So the staff becomes this important symbol as we move forward. So they take the staff, And the Lord commands them to take it in before Pharaoh. I want you to take this staff and do as I command. I want you to throw it down so it'll turn into a serpent. He's keeping his promise to Moses, and this is where this story really begins. So once again, God gives the command. Moses and Aaron listen, even though it went really bad last time, and they go to see Pharaoh. And that's where we're going to pick it up again in verse 10. So look at Exodus 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So that just to recap the ending real quick, Pharaoh's heart's hard. He's not going to listen. God's telling them he's not going to listen. So God's not doing this miracle right here to, to convert Pharaoh right now. God's, Pharaoh's heart is hard, and God wants it that way until he's ready for this thing to end, until he's ready for his glory to go forth. And so Pharaoh's not going to listen. So this passage begins this major pattern that we're going to see over the next six or seven chapters as we walk through the plague saga. It's a pattern um, that you can really, you, if you're paying attention, you can see as we walk through it. And so for you theology dorks, for you Bible dorks, you're going to really love this. For the rest of you, you're going to be like, okay, that's cool. But we're going to walk through it anyway, because I think it's awesome, right? So this pattern that we're going to see again and again, um, I think I put it on a slide. Do we have that other slide, Dustin? It's, it's this. We'll see it play out again and again. First thing that'll happen is God will give a command to Moses and Aaron, and they will do as the Lord commanded, Right? Second second thing we're going to see over and over again. He'll give them some sort of symbolic action, symbolic thing to do to represent God's power so they can see that God has power. Third thing we're going to see is the Egyptian sorcerers, the magicians, try to duplicate it. We see that over and over until about what? The fourth or fifth plague? Until they get completely overwhelmed by God's power and they stop even trying because they're like, I don't know what to do, right? So they look like they have power here at the beginning, but that's not going to last very long. Step four, there'll be some sort of a resulting consequence, some resulting action that God takes. And then the last thing we're gonna see over and over again is Pharaoh's hardness of heart. So can you see that playing out here? Right, God commands them to go throw down the staff, and it says in the passage, they did as the Lord commanded. Then they throw down the staff, it turns into a snake showing God's power, showing his glory as a demonstration The magicians actually duplicate it. We're going to talk about that in a minute. They duplicate their staffs turn into snakes. And then what was the consequence of that action? What consequence came? Can you see it in the passage? That Aaron's staff, Moses' staff, ate the other stakes, ate the other staffs. That's a a small consequence now that's pointing to a lot of big things. And then we see Pharaoh's hardness of heart. He refuses to listen once again. But in the end... What I love about this is this is more than, what's happening here is more than just a pattern. This moment is foreshadowing major things to come in the book of Exodus and major things to come in the story of our redemption. And I love it when the the Bible does this. It's just found in the details. That's why you gotta spend time meditating and really looking at what it's trying to say. So there's plenty of things in here that we can't just rush through. And so the first thing I don't want us to just gloss over, I want us to look at the role of the magicians here, the sorcerers. So a magician in Egypt was most likely basically like a priest, right? They represented their God. They were the wise men, as it says in Scripture. They were the wise, the wise men. And um, in ancient times, they actually have ancient writings um, from around this time in Egypt. And these guys were known for having power. They were, they were known for doing extraordinary feats in ancient literature. And so the, if you want to think of like Pharaoh as representing the, the prowess, the power of Egypt, the military might of Egypt— these guys represented the spiritual power of Egypt, of the Egyptian gods. Pharaoh did too. He's the God king, right? But um, they represented the power of the Egyptian gods. Now, just as a reminder, I said this at the beginning, right? I said this before, but if you are not on God's team, whose team are you on? Satan's team. Church, listen. Again, when we're looking at ancient religions, when we're looking at false gods, it's just that simple. Ephesians 2 makes that clear for us. Before we are saved, whether we know it or not, my, I don't think Satan gets most of us by turning us into devil worshipers, into Satan worshipers. Some of us, but that's not how he gets most of us. He just leads us astray. And one of the best ways for God to lead us astray is into false religions. Because it looks like God. It whispers of God. There's some truths in those religions. But the best way he can lead us astray is leave us off to worship something else other than him. In the end, I think that's Satan's overall goal. Just don't worship God. If I can get you to worship anything else, love, love sex, money, greed, or false gods, he wins. Your, your children, we're not even getting to that one today. That'll hit, somebody, that'll hit somebody in the mouth today, right? But we make idols of even our families, our children. I mean, First Corinthians ten twenty makes this clear for us that if we are worshiping false gods, we're not just worshiping a false religion. They are, de- they are demons deceiving us into thinking that there's something that they are not because Satan and his demons do have power. And these men represent the embodiment, embodiment of that in Egypt, They represent a very real and very powerful spiritual force. So when we see Aaron display God's power by throwing down the staff and becoming a stake, right? That's a miracle that he gave Moses to display God's power. And if that's the case, then how do we explain that the Egyptian magicians, the Egyptian sorcerers, the Egyptian wise men do the same thing? How can we explain that they did the same thing if it's a demonstration of God's supernatural power Well, we have a couple of options. We have a couple ways of looking at this. And throughout time, I think theologically, people have looked at this two different ways. I'm going to tell you them both, and then I'm going to let you make the decision which one you think it is. Here's the first option. One, men in the ancient world were known for being snake charmers. And in the ancient world, that was a representation of, of a sign of power over creation, right? If you could charm a snake, charm a cobra, something like that. Not only that, magicians are known for their sleight of hand, they're known for their illusions that are accomplished through misdirection, like making people think they did something that they didn't do, right? Isn't that not what magicians do even to this day? So, after Aaron did this miracle, these guys were summoned. But if you look in the passage, we don't know how long it took them to get there, but if you actually read it, like if you watch Prince of Egypt, they're just right there and they're like, yeah, right? But um, right there it says, they did this and then they were summoned, Right, so there probably was some time for the wise men of Egypt to come. We don't know that, but it looks like it from the passage. So they may have had some time to prepare to know what was going on and to walk in prepared. And it's possible that these magicians who were trained to make people think they were amazing and awesome and can do these incredible things came in with their sleight of hand tricks. They came in with their illusions with like misdirection and made it look like they actually turned their staff into a snake. And so if you take that as an option and then you look, Pharaoh was hard-hearted. He did not want to believe Moses and Aaron, right? He doesn't want to obey the God of the Bible. So a man who's already wanting to listen to them that will kind of turn a blind eye to something that, that might not look quite as cool as Moses and Aaron's did would probably believe them and be like, yeah, I don't have to listen to your God. Move on. You don't have any real power. My guys did the same thing. I think that's one legitimate option to think that's what's going on here. I think as this goes on and they do a couple more of the miracles that Moses does, that gets a little harder. It gets a little harder to think it went that way, but I think that's an option. Here's the other one. The other option is they actually did this, that this happened, that they did it as Moses and Aaron did, that their dark arts, they, they have their dark arts and they have real spiritual power. So let me ask you a question. Does Satan and his demons have real power in this world? Yes. Yes, they, they do. Yeah, as I said before, the Bible even calls Satan the ruler, the God of this world. It doesn't mean he's literally the God of this world, but he has power here. Like God is still over everything, has authority over everything, and nothing in this world happens without God letting it happen. But Satan does have power, right? In the New Testament, do we ever see that power ever? Remember the guy that was possessed by demons that no one could stop? He was too strong. They even tried to chain him, and the chains didn't work. No one could stop this guy from doing the crazy things that he was doing until Jesus showed up. He had supernatural power that nobody could explain. They were even warning Jesus about it. But Jesus has more power. We see displays of spiritual power that are not from God happen in the Bible. We see it happen in the New Testament. Yes, Satan has real power in this world. So do I think it's at least possible that they displayed very real, dark, spiritual power here? Yeah, I do think it's possible. I absolutely think it's possible. So here's the thing. I don't think—you like, read it. You study it. Be like the Bereans. You study it for yourself, right? right? I don't think that the Hebrew here, or we're given enough context to say for absolutely sure what is happening here But I think it's very possible that this is spiritual power at work because Satan and his demons have power. And maybe that's scary to some of you. Maybe that terrifies some of you. But if you're in Jesus Christ, if you love the Lord, don't be afraid because it doesn't stop there. We have the end of verse 12. And what happened at the end of verse 12? Aaron's staff devoured their power, the representation of their power. His staff devoured the other staffs, the other snakes. What an amazing and subtle just foreshadowing of things to come in this book throughout and throughout the rest of scripture. I love it when the Bible does this. The Bible most of the time is pretty overt. I mean it's just telling you exactly what's going on. But if you're paying any attention right now, if you spend some time in it and you really think through what this is doing, I man this is amazing display and foreshadowing of what's to come. Because yes, Pharaoh has tremendous power. And Egypt has tremendous power. And yes, maybe even the magicians and and the sorcerers in Egypt have power because of the Egyptian gods, but they are nothing compared to the one true God. and it's just being whispered here, and I love it. It's the God, the God of the Bible who is just displaying it a little bit right here, but in, in just a few more moments in this book over the next few weeks, we're going to see he's going to take that whispering of his power into doing amazing miracle and judgments to show that he has absolute power over not over just Egypt, but over all of creation. Like he, he molds and shapes creation around him for his will and his purposes, not some little tricks that the Egyptian magicians can duplicate. Yes, Jesus, yes, Egypt has power, but the devouring of the snakes is showing us what power really looks like when laid against the glory of God. You can do your little tricks, but in the end, I'm gonna own you. This, I, I wrote down there, this is the moment where we're really gonna see how God's gonna put a butt kicking on the gods of Egypt, but I decided to take that out. Because I don't know if I should say butt kicking from the front. Right? And so this is the moment when God's gonna do amazing things to display his glory. Brandon, it's okay. It's okay. I'm good. So I don't, not only that, not only is it foreshadowing of what God is going to do when he's gonna, as it says in the scripture, he's gonna stretch out his his hand of power and bring judgment by his miracles on Egypt to display his glory. I think it's that, but I think it's more than that. I don't think it's a stretch at all to see more than that in this moment. Because as I've said, the story of the Exodus and the Passover that comes out of this is represented all through Scripture. All the way to Christ, into the new covenant, all the way to the end. I want you to think about this. If you remember in Genesis 3, all of this really started, this need for redemption, it all really started with the power and the influence of a serpent who deceived Adam and Eve who ate the fruit and brought sin and evil and, and damage and all the things that God was against into the world, right? They believed the serpent and they ate. But what's cool about that is in that moment, when, like, this is ultimate betrayal, right? God had given them everything. They had a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with 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 each other. Everything was in perfect harmony and they broke it and they fractured it because they wanted to be their own gods. They listened to the serpent who deceived them. So the, the worst possible betrayal possible because it's hard for us to imagine this. There was no sin. There was no way to portray God except for one way and they did it. Right? They did it. And don't think you would have been any different because you know what the Ten Commandments are. How many's going to raise their hand right now and say, just in the last year I've perfectly followed the Ten Commandments? You think you're going to be any different than Ab and Eve? If there was only one commandment, I bet, I, I bet almost everybody in this room at some, at some point has lied, right? Stretch the truth, lie. Right? You're a liar. I'm a liar. We can't even do that one. So don't think you were better than Adam and Eve. And so they had one rule to follow they broke it ultimate betrayal, cosmic betrayal. But what did God do? He was right there, even in that moment, showing grace and mercy, saying, "Yes, you broke this. Yes, it's going to fracture everything." but in that moment he's there to promise a son, a son that's going to come that's going to undo this curse, that's going to crush the power of that serpent and the curse he brought into the world, that's going to come and it's going to redeem you. We see the promise of the gospel, even in Genesis 3, that someday that God, that the son, is going to come and devour the power of that serpent that's held sway over humanity for so long. Jesus Christ is that son, church. He is that son. He is the serpent crusher. He is the devourer of Satan's power. On that cross, Jesus Christ took what we deserve, what we deserve for our sin because we've betrayed God because we've wanted to be our own gods just like the people in Egypt wanted to be their own gods Because we were not living for God's kingdom. We were living for our kingdom. And he provided the way that we could be restored, delivered from the kingdom of this world, from the kingdom of sin and death, into the kingdom of God. And then he resurrected three days later. And he literally broke the power of Satan's kingdom on earth. He crushed the power of the serpent, sin. That's the real power, the, fear, the, the, the curse of sin and the fear of death. So when we believe in Jesus Christ, he, de- he delivers us from that kingdom into his kingdom. He delivers us from the fear of sin and death and the power of sin and death. He, he delivers us from the power of the serpent into his kingdom of freedom and life. That's why Exodus is the story of the entire Bible. This is the the beginning of the story of deliverance in God by his presence because of what he has done because God keeps his promises. The story of the gospel is not a story about you. Praise God for that. I I hate it when it gets preached from the front that you just need to be better and you just need to do these things. And if you can be a good enough Christian, man, God's gonna love you. Maybe they don't say that, but that's how it's it's portrayed. That's how it's portrayed. And it's awful. The story of Exodus was Moses kept making it about him. And what did God say? No, no, no. It's about me. I'm the deliverer. I'm coming. I'll restore my people. It's about my strength, not you. So you trust in me. And I've got this, Moses. And that's the story for us, too. Yes, the serpent. Yes, Satan has power in this world. But God is telling you in Christ listen, I got you. I got you. For I am the God that keeps my promises. I am the God that delivers my people. I am the God that is for my people, that is with my people, and will never abandon my people. Church, what's a beautiful thing for us that in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus, that they didn't have, but we do have, is that it's more than that. It's that that power is within you. Like, Like literally, within you. If only we would walk in that. If only we walk in this truth. That's why I can't let go. I've quoted this, like, I think, three times in the front. I can't let it go. Second Peter 1 says, By his divine power, he has granted to you all things you need for life and godliness, for life and holiness. You don't need more from God. You just need to realize of who you are in God and the power that God has placed in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You already have it. We're so out there like trying to work for it, to try to go get it. And yes, we've got, we've got to pursue the Lord and know his word and know the promises that he's telling. He's saying, I'm a God of promises. How can we hold on to them if we don't know what the promises are? So yes, be in your word. Yes, pray. Yes, pursue. But it's also realizing you are already this thing because of the Holy Spirit within you. You have been delivered. Man, here's the, here's the truth. These last couple of weeks have been hard Hard. Probably this last week and a half has been the hardest week and a half of my ministry since I started. And it has seemed like too much at times. Can I be honest? My wife's not in here. I said this to somebody before the service. I had a conversation with my wife yesterday, and I, I've never said this before, and I didn't mean it. But I said, doesn't it just sound great? Like, let's just pack up all of our stuff and drive to Alaska 100 miles from anywhere. Doesn't that sound amazing today? That's how, that's how I felt yesterday. Is that okay for me to say? That's how I felt yesterday. I don't want to leave you. I love this family. I love being the pastor of this church. It is the joy of my life. But yesterday, I just wanted to pack up and go. D- don't worry. I'm not going anywhere unless you fire me until I'm dead, or God changes the plan. Right? You're not getting rid of me. I don't want to go anywhere. This is it. But it's felt overwhelming at times in the last week. Just overwhelming. I'm tired. I'm tired. But it's in those moments when God be, can become the most real to us. He can become the most strength for us. When our strength, when we know it, in that moment, have you been there? When you just know my strength is not enough. I just know right now it's not enough. When it feels like you might fail, it feels like you might fall, it feels like you, ain't got, you, you do not have enough. It's that moment when you just can't see the way forward. Don't even, listen, maybe you don't even wanna see the way forward. It's then that we, we really begin to realize that it's in our weakness that God shows his power. Is that that not exactly what he's doing with Moses? In his greatest weakness, he's showing his power. He wants to bring us low, not because he likes to bring us low, but to humble us so that we can see, so he can tell us, you don't have to do this alone. Stop trying to do it alone. God brings us low for our sake because he loves us, because he wants more for us than us trying to be good enough. As 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, I have held on to this like a death grip throughout my life. Second Corinthians 12 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly for my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You don't have to be good enough, church. You don't have to be strong enough, church, because it's in your weakness that you find real power. Moses needed a reminder of God's power. The the people of of Israel needed a reminder of God's power. And listen, sometimes we need, sometimes I need that reminder too. Because the reality is this life is hard. And our enemy is real. But the I am is in control. He is the I am He was before all things. He will be after all things. He is the fullness of all things. And in Christ, the I am has made us known in him. We are known in him for he is in us and he has made us his own. Our God keeps his promises. Our God delivers his children. Our God is always with us. So don't lose hope, church. Don't lose hope. Don't stop seeking him. Don't stop moving forward. Don't be okay with apathy. Don't be okay with your depression. Don't be okay of staying where you are because in him, in that weakness, you can move forward and you'll find his strength because all things that you need by his divine power have already been given to you. Everything that you need for life and holiness is in you. In Christ, by the plan of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, the powers of this world have already been crushed. The slavery of sin has already been defeated. And the fear of death has already been conquered. We can move forward in confidence because our Savior has devoured that power. So my call to you, church, today is go forward in confidence and hope because our God reigns. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, God, I love these stories. Thank you so much for giving us these stories, these 66 books, your word, because you want us to know you. And God, when we really dwell in this, when we think about this, God, you are so worth knowing. You're so worth our glo- us giving you glory and praise and honor. I know we sing worship songs, and I know we say, but we read stuff like this. God, draw us into worship, for you are worthy of worship. I thank you, God, that you're not just the God and the power on high, but that you are our Father, you are our Savior, you are our friend, you are our helper, you are the Spirit within us, helping us to see that we have that power too, that we don't have to walk in fear or defeat, for we already have victory in Christ. And we already have your power within us. What an amazing truth. God, help us. Help us to walk in that. Help us to believe that. So so today, whether we're being crushed by sin or crushed by grief or crushed by uncertainty or depression or fear or whatever else is trying to own us today, trying to distract us from who you are, God, I pray that your spirit would fall on us, would move, would set us free, would help us to repent, would help us to move forward so that we can walk in this divine power that you've given us. God, I just pray for hope. That no matter what's happening today, even for the people in this room that are feeling as low as they can feel, God, I pray for hope and comfort, for that's who you are, the God of hope and comfort. God, I pray that you would use all of our suffering, all of our pain, to make us more like you, Jesus. That we learn to endure in you. That we learn to have your character in these things, and that that would give us hope, and that would grow our love. So that even in the hardest things, we can still find joy in you. God, for those that are really struggling today, I pray you'd be with them. I pray you draw them into your presence, and I pray you'd give them comfort. For the rest of us in this room, God, that have maybe gotten too used to isolation from distancing, from whatever else, I pray that you would give us a conviction to love, to serve, and to pour out that hope within us so that we might encourage others. God, I pray in the end that you just help us to be a family. Not a bunch of church attenders, but a family who lifts each other lifts each other's each other up in the hard times so that we can remember the strength that's in us. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.